Hi, my name is John Beasold, and this is Dutch Art and Design Today. I've worked as a writer, editor, and journalist for the past 15 years, most recently at Out Holland, the world's longest surviving art historical journal, which covers the art of the Low Countries from 1400 to the early 20th century. The Netherlands is celebrated worldwide for its golden age art and its modern design counterparts, though rarely do those who work in these fields have the chance to explain that same work in their own words. In this podcast, I'll take you behind the scenes and tell the stories of the many museum curators, art educators, contemporary designers, and artists, and everyone in between. In each episode, I'll sit down with some of the key players and the tastemakers in the worlds of Dutch art and design. My next guest is Christy Klinkert, who, since 2009, is the curator of Old Masters at the Stedelijk Museum in Alkmaar. Christy and I both know one another through my work as the review editor of Out Holland. She's reviewed a book for the journal, a book of hers has been reviewed for the journal, and so on. More importantly, she has an amazingly sharp wit and an infectiously joyous sense of humor, both of which shine through in our conversation here. In addition to being incredibly passionate about the art from the Dutch Golden Age, Christy and I also share a passion for language, editing, well-produced books, and Dutch art museums. And so it was with much excitement that I made my way to Alkmaar at the beginning of 2022 to record this episode with her to discuss such subjects as these and more. As the curator of Old Masters at one of the Netherlands' longest established museums, which is also housed in a building designed by the Dutch architecture firm Meccano, dating from 2000, Christy is responsible for the care and display of the museum's Old Masters collection. Under her tenure, the museum has increasingly staged innovative exhibitions that make use of the museum's dedicated exhibition space and often focus on topics or themes related to Alkmaar or North Holland in general. In this lengthy, nearly two-hour-long episode, we discuss her early love of the arts, how she came to relay that passion into a dissertation, and what writing a dissertation taught her about her own sense of self-conviction in the best possible sense. We then move on to the biography and the work of Allard von Everdinger, a Dutch Golden Age artist who is perhaps, today, best known for his paintings of Scandinavian landscapes, and we talk about what makes his work so special. We then head into the exhibition that was then on display at the museum, entitled Allard von Everdinger, Master of the Rugged Landscape, which ran from 18 September 2021 to 8 May 2022. Christy and I meander through the exhibition space as she explains the exhibition's main ideas and key works, from its physical design to its installation, to its inclusion of artworks by the Dutch photographer Pascal Vossen, to the clustering and thematic organization of Alaric's works by size and subject. We conclude our visit to the gallery by stopping by a small annex of it that highlights Reinhard de Vos, which is an epic medieval tale from Middle Dutch literature and a satirical take on early medieval society, which Alert, intriguingly, also portrayed. After leaving the exhibition space, we reflect on the catalog that was produced by Christy and her team at the museum, including her emphasizing the importance of inviting external specialists to help research Alert's artworks, who also all contributed to the catalog. Lastly, Christy lays out what's to come in the years ahead at the Stedelijk Museum, such as an exhibit on the artist Martin von Heemskerk and another on slavery at the plantation named Alkmaar in Suriname, 
which is named after the city of Alkmaar in the Netherlands. The show recently opened at the museum and is entitled Plantage Alkmaar, Alkmaar in Suriname, 1745 to today, and is on display until spring 2023. Without further delay, let's dive right in. One of the things that I like to ask my guest, whose work I very much admire, but I do not know personally, is what is your first memory of ever getting pleasure from artwork, especially a painting? Well, I, I grew up in a house full of books because my mom is a, a specialist in Dutch literature and she teaches Dutch. Um, so there were a lot of books by Dutch writers and I loved reading those. I was a reading um, bookworm, so to speak. And then there was one book that I loved especially, and it was called Zoekenaar Eileen Ray, Searching for Eileen W., by the Dutch writer Leon Winter. And I loved it because it was uh, sort of based, the modern story was based on a middle-aged story of Tristan and Isolde. Um, and on the book cover was a painting by Pierre Bonnard, uh, or Nude Bending Down, it's called, but he made lots of nudes, so you won't know which one I mean, but it's Nude Bending Down from the Tate Gallery, I think, in London. And then when I was 16, I went to London with a friend who also was very interested in Dutch literature. And we said, we'll go to London and we'll see that painting because we loved the book. And we were interested in how the painting, what role it played in the book, and we wanted to see it for ourselves. And then we went to the museum and uh, to see it. And I was struck by, well, the beauty of it, obviously, but also the difference between the image on the book and the actual painting. It was much smaller than I thought. I thought it was like the same height as me as a person, but it wasn't. It very small. And uh, it wasn't as pinkish as I thought. It was more purple. So I think that was my first impression of how an actual artwork is something else than an image. It's not flat. It's, it's a being. It's, it's a presence. And you have to experience it to know how it works in the gallery or on the wall. And I stood there for minutes to, to enjoy it and to I'm actually hear. And I thought it was so cool that I went to see it when I was only 16. <laughs> my friend was a bit older, so she, she helped me find my way. Yeah, that was sort of the first time that I took pleasure in seeing an actual artwork. That's beautiful. And would you say this is also what led you to actually study art um, and led you to actually work with it professionally? It led me to study first because I was still very interested in how this artwork functioned in the, in the story. And then I, uh, at first I decided I wanted to study Dutch literature or Latin and Greek because I also loved Latin and Greek and all the stories associated with that language and that culture. So I went to the university to 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 the and I went to both these uh, informative meetings for Dutch literature and for Latin and Greek, and I was not impressed. I didn't like it, so I wandered around the university, and then I sort of haphazardly uh, entered a room where someone was informing uh, students to come uh, about a, a studies that combined literature and art, and I sat there and I thought, this is what I want to do. So I, I, uh, I entered that study. That's actually really fascinating because one of the questions um, that I've been able to, um, let's say, 
uh, sculpt or shape uh, once I was looking into your background to uh, find my own uh, way to see how you came to be a curator here at the Stadelik Museum in Alkmaar was your dissertation, um, which I understand was on the newsprints of um, Moritz von Nassau. I believe if we were to translate the title, it would actually be Nassau in the News, Newsprints of Moritz, um, Moritz's Military Enterprises from the period of 1590 to 1600. So you completed your dissertation on the newsprints uh, of Moritz, who was the second son of William the Silent. And for those outside of the Netherlands who might be listening who don't know, William the Silent is considered to be the founding father of the Dutch Republic, and uh, Moritz was actually his second son. Um, he was the Prince of Orange from 1618 to 1625. His, yo his younger brother was Frederick Hendrik, who married Amalia von Solms. Um, his wife um, was actually responsible for commissioning many of the artists that we presently uh, associate with the 17th century Dutch Republic. So now that you've actually shared a bit about your first memory of actually going to London and your memory around the pleasure of art, I have a bit more of an understanding about how you came to your dissertation because with your work here at the museum, um, you are the curator of old masters. And of course, most people associate old masters with, of course, paintings. So I really understand now your background and your interest in combining text and images, which is, of course, also uh, very much a part of the work of a curator. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak a bit about your dissertation, because at that time in 2005, um, this was, again, pre-social media, pre-internet in its current phase. And um, one of the things that people look back on at that time in the early 2000s is the way that research um, started to become combinatorial and really interdisciplinary. And from what I understand about your actual dissertation um, and what I read from it in a review is that you came to the conclusion that newsprints, maps, and art are actually all alike. Um, and this is because they all combine text and words, which is quite special. So could you speak a bit about how you focused on news and prints uh, during this time and how you found your way to this niche in, say, Dutch art history, considering that it is art, but it combines military activities with the circulation of the news, maps, modes of communication, all these subjects combined. Very well informed, because in interdisciplinarity was the key word in the early 2000s. So everything you wanted money for, every research you wanted money for, you needed to be in working interdisciplinary. And I could, because I had done this interdisciplinary studies. So I was fine with that. I felt at home with that. Um, but I didn't really choose the subject myself. It, it was really fitting for me, but mm -hmm. I didn't really choose it. I wanted to do a PhD after I had finished, finished my studies. But um, I had this middle age, I was sort of, I dived into the middle age and I loved that. So I wanted to do some middle age subject. But I couldn't get funding for that. I tried, but I, it was hard at the time, as it is now, but it was hard. So I couldn't get it funded. But I kept going to the university to lectures or meetings or whatever there was to meet people. And I kept saying, I want to be a PhD student. By that time, I didn't really care what I had to do. just <laughs> wanted to do extra research. I wasn't done researching. So I said that to everyone I met. And then... Um, well, actually, it went like this, that one day I got a call from one of the professors I knew from my studies, Ilya Feldman, and she said, 
Christy, I heard you want to be a PhD student. I always enjoyed working with you when you were a student. I have funding for a large uh, research project and I need a few PhD students. I said, yes, whatever it is, I'll do it. And then she, she smiled. She, she, she has this <laughs> amazing laugh. And she said, well, okay, let's talk about it first. So I, I went to her and she explained that she had this large uh, project defined uh, on propaganda and prints during the 80 years war. It was this large. And, and someone had already done a PhD, Daniel Horst, who works at the Rijks Museum. Now, he had already done a PhD on the propaganda prints from the start of the 80 years war up until the death of William of Orange. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she was looking for someone who could take it up from that, that period, from 1584, up until well, further. And um, so I had something to build on and I had something to read to see, okay, does this match my interest or do I feel up to it? And I read that and I said, well, I think I can do it. I don't know much about prints and I don't know much about the 16th and 17th century uh, because I was diving into the Middle Ages. But I, uh, you know, I was young and I felt I could do anything if I set my mind to it. Of course. (laughs) And I had one year before I had to actually start. So I I, I promised Ilya, okay, I'll, I'll write up a proposal for what I'm actually going to research. Um, and I'll uh, I'll uh, look for the right literature and, and, and read it and make sure I'm up to date on the state of research um, when it comes to prints and the 80 years war. And I actually did that. I, I studied very hard for a year. And I felt uh, ready to start a year later and I got the PhD uh, position. And I, uh, so that's why I started <laughs> researching the 16th and 17th century. And it gave me, I think it gave me something, not just the knowledge of that period of time and that uh, specific medium, but also the conviction that if you put your mind to it, you don't ever have to feel, I never studied that, so I I can't start studying it and and be a specialist. If you set your mind to it and you take a little time, sure, you're able to master it. You just need a little time. But in, in a year or two, you'll be able to talk with the specialist and you'll learn from them. And in a few years more, you'll be a specialist too. I honestly believe that. Don't ever let anyone tell you you cannot be a specialist when you have never studied it in previous years. That's fascinating and well said. And it's also, I think, um, incredibly useful and also rather interesting and makes you quite unique in terms of being a curator of paintings because (laughs) part of being a curator with paintings is, of course, the knowledge of the painters, the biographies, the practices around their workshops, their pupils, etc., um, but also in terms of the actual knowledge of the period. So if you're actually studying prints and news, that's really a background that's, of course, related to art, um, again, because it combines text and image. But, but it's, it's not seen as art by many. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and well, that's what makes your PhD fascinating. I loved it. I was called um, <laughs> Miss News Prints <laughs> and Miss Warfare. Because people find it very fascinating that uh, I'm not that tall. I'm, I'm I'm fairly small, and I'm I think I look sort of nice and not like I I am not aggressive. Yeah. But I was very enthusiastic about warfare. It's actually really interesting how it was done and how people thought about it, and the technical side of it was really interesting. And Maritz was really good at it, much better than his famous father. He was really into the technical side of things, and he was really. Um, he never wasted his men. He, when, when something, when, when some strategy cost too many lives, he stopped. He would never go on. 
And and I like that about him. And I think I have some sort of personal appreciation for Moritz for the way he waged war. And I'm a pacifist. Let that uh, me as well. But he, he did it, he did it in, a, in a good way. And the prints were made by artists or cartographers, but for a certain goal to inform people and sometimes for propaganda, uh, but not as artworks. And that fascinated me. How how will you use your your skills in telling a story mm-hmm. um, convincingly or dramatically with your skills as an artist to inform people? That's interesting. And it's interesting to sort of pick pick apart where's the information and where's the storytelling? How does it come together and how does it work together? And what's wrong uh, factually and what's uh, told in such a way that it's still right, even though it may not be on the right part of the map, but it still tells the story right. So people kept saying, yeah, but they didn't get everything right at the time, right? Because they didn't have the internet or phones or whatever. No, but they did get a lot of things right. They did they did get a lot of things right. So I can point out what's wrong, but I can also make you surprised about what was right. When these artists were working far from the, the warfare, the what I've gained from reading a bit of your research is that um, at the end of the day, we expected everything, um, especially if you don't have a historical background from research, we expected everything 400 years ago to be slow. But what if, from my read of your actual PhD, uh, the published version of it, oftentimes um, Franz Hogenberg, for instance, who was one of the well-known printmakers of, um, for instance, sieges, the siege of Harlem, the siege of Maastricht, the siege of Antwerp. These were actually produced in only a day or two, and they were very quickly turned around to the populace. So I'm sure that having that um, anchor in this period really um, gives you a different sort of appreciation as if you were, for instance, to have only studied um, for your dissertation, a monographic study of one painter and their herb, for instance. And I, again, can also imagine this has helped you um, just in the actual process of making catalog exhibitions, which we'll get into a bit later regarding um, the current exhibition that you hear, have here at the museum. Um, but to feed, speed forward a little bit, one of the things I want to ask you is that after you completed your dissertation, you then worked at the Rijksmuseum, from what I understand, as an editor, and you also worked um, in the internet, which is, of course, the spreading of information. So just to jump forward a bit in time, could you talk about how this background of knowledge that you got from your dissertation study affected your ability to have an overview of your work at the Rijksmuseum in the sense that you were not just looking at it from the perspective of someone who's writing or editing in the museum, but you actually understood and contextualized how that process affects the reading I guess you could call it the populace or the people who visit the website, for instance, at that time. Well, I must stress that I was only an editor uh, assistant. So uh, there was, at the time, it's, it's hardly imaginable because I know there's a whole team now, but there were just two people, me and the sort of senior uh, web editor, who worked on it. So the senior web editor thought of all the sort of larger structure of things and what we were going to do. And I was just putting in uh, content. But of course, I... What I learned especially, uh, and I think I may have gotten that from my PhD research, is that before you put it online, you have to talk to a lot of people associated with the content that you're putting online. So I talked to the press team and I talked to the educational team. Uh, I actually was part of that, so they were across my desk. Uh, And I talked to the curators. and And I noticed that was considered a bit new to do that. To, to, to reach out to all these different uh, people working at the Rijksmuseum. 
because uh, at the time, I hope that's not the case anymore, and I don't think so, but at the time there was a sort of animosity between education and the curator's department. And I honestly didn't see why that had to be the case. Mm-hmm. Because we all sort of work for the same goal, right? To get some interesting information and really amusing stuff over to the public. So I was always um, asking questions to all these different departments and, and reaching out and trying to connect to all these different people working on uh, on that subject or that research to make sure I got it right and I, I got it right to the public. Well, again, it's very of that time, going back to your research interdisciplinary, once the internet sort of came down, people realized that you can no longer be siloed, whether that's uh, in a university or an institution as a museum. Yeah, the keyword worked well for a while. Yeah. We were aware of that, as is, you know, trans-historical now. Yeah, exactly. We sigh about it, but on the other hand, it teaches us something that we take with us in the future. Well, it's um, a very good segue into the position which you currently find yourself in. Um, here at the State of the Museum in Altmar, where you've been a curator of old master paintings since 2009. Um, When you first began at the museum, um, it was not so long after it was actually opened in 2000. The building was designed by Meccano, and Meccano, for those who do not know, is a Dutch architecture firm based in Delft originally. Um, Today they have expanded and they are everywhere in terms of building from Boston to New York to Birmingham to Taiwan. The firm is led by Francine Halpin, who is one of the few Dutch female architects who's, um, let's say, in a prominent position today, together with Natalie de Vries of MBRDV, also Ellen van Loon van OMA, but also Carolyn Bos van UN Studio. And so, for instance, when we talk about the museum here in Alkmaar compared to, for instance, uh, the Marit's House in The Hague, which is very much a 17th century small sort of little city, not quite a palace, but let's say a a gentleman's home that's been um, morphed into a museum, if you want to call it. Uh, That's very different than, for instance, the Franz Hals Museum, which is a former Hofje or... um, let's say, a 17th century building that is meant to contextualize the Franz Hall's uh, um, museum's artwork that really showcases the Harlem artist. And then again, that itself is very different than the Rijksmuseum, which is a purpose-built building from the late 1800s that is specifically meant to, in a very prominent, proud way, display the story of the Netherlands through its art. So when we go back and actually compare the museum here to these other museums in the Netherlands, could you speak a bit about um, not only the challenges, but the benefits of having a building that is so new um, and very much purpose designed to be an art museum? Um, But simultaneously, because of that, uh, it's not always just going to be a white box. If we look around, for instance, we're surrounded by concrete, we're surrounded by skylights, we're surrounded by wood, and it's um, occupying a very prominent place in the city next to a very, very, very old church. Um, So could you talk a bit about how that benefits your work as a curator here in this building, but also perhaps some of the ways that it might actually make your work a bit more difficult. And of course, that in turn makes your work more creative. (laughs) Yeah, good question. We are actually one of the oldest museums in the Netherlands. Okay. We were founded in 1875 um, with the uh, the goal, the explicit goal, to preserve the memories and objects of the siege of Alkmaar Mm -hmm. in 1873. So 
as I know a lot about sieges. That was one of the <laughs> first things that I liked about this museum, that I got to work on sieges again. Um, and I think that may have been one of the reasons why I was invited for the interview <laughs> when I applied for the curatorship. Um, but we are one of the oldest museums, so we were uh, housed in older buildings before. Uh, in the older part of the city, there's the Civic Guards uh, home, the, the House of the Civic Guards. And we were there from the 60s until we were housed in this modern building. And this building was purpose-built as a museum, but usually as a well, more, so to say, as a sort of uh, cultural hub with the library next to us in the same building in an art school in the, on the other side in the same building. So it's one large building, sort of a box um, for these cultural institutions. And we're next to the theater. And as you said, next to the great church, which is a 16th century building, very old. So we're, uh, we, we call ourselves the Kulturplein, the cultural place in Alkmaar. Um, so the good thing is that this building was built as a cultural institution, uh, as a museum. But on the other hand, uh, the 2000s were different times. Um, and it was built as a museum, with, but honestly, with a little too much direct light. Mm. Not in the museum galleries, but um, well, also in the museum galleries. Actually, we we, we put some uh, sort of um, UV anti UV foil on the on the uh, on the windows recently uh, to make sure it doesn't harm the artworks. And also, it was built as a museum, but the concrete walls that are a signature style of Meccano, uh, if you drill into them, that causes vibrations that are really bad for the artworks hanging on the same wall. So that made our work very difficult for a while, practically. Mm -hmm. uh, if we want to uh, rehang something or install a painting on a wall that has many other paintings, we have to take everything off, then drill the holes, then put all the paintings back on. And all this handling is also not good for paintings, you know, stillness and, and keeping them where they are is better. So that was unpractical, but we talked about it with Meccano architects and they were very understanding of our problems. And um, uh, so they helped us refurbish some of the rooms. So where uh, in the temporary exhibition spaces, for instance, where we keep rehanging and reinstalling things, mm -hmm. we now have built uh, walls against the walls, wooden walls against the walls on metal strips that are much easier to drill in and to work with and to paint also. Um, because I must say that some guests appreciate the modern architecture that we're in, but most of them say that the building is unfriendly. They find the concrete unfriendly and a bit raw, maybe, uh, unwelcoming. So we have this problem in our museum that we are known, I think we're known for well-researched exhibitions, mm -hmm. but, and people are sometimes, we hate that, People are sometimes still surprised by our quality. And by this time, we've been doing this for quite some, some time, these internationally oriented exhibitions based on solid research. So by now we think, are you still surprised? <laughs> we've been doing this for quite a while. But it's because our building, maybe it has to do with the fact that our building looks so modern that you don't expect old masters to be presented here in the way that we do present them. So um, it's sort of, it's good that it's a purpose-built building because we can sort of make it in so that it works for us, even though it doesn't really work that well yet, but we, we make it, we are uh, adjusting it so that it works for us. 
But on the other hand, it doesn't have the right vibe, maybe, for the old masters that we're showing. Um, and it doesn't have the right atmosphere yet. But, as I said, Pecano Architects feels our pain. <laughs> and they're working with us, with us to change that, step by step. Uh, and we have already taken a lot of steps. We used the lockdowns. Uh, to take a lot of steps. I mean, we are refurbishing our permanent exhibition in the coming year. Mm -hmm. And they are, you know, the best to work with. They understand that the routing through our building is also a problem because it has three floors, one beneath the ground, one on the ground and one on top of that one. And when people enter and look at our uh, temporary exhibitions on the ground floor, they usually go up after that and they forget that there's also a basement floor. So routing is a problem too. But Meccano is helping us out, uh, I think, in the best possible way. And uh, having a background in architecture myself, I can always tell you that um, working with the original architect of a building to reorient users through the routing or, for instance, create an addition is the best way to go about yeah. it. And that's the beauty of having a new building. Um, so if you have this very special building, again, it's very different than some of the other Dutch museums. Um, and simultaneously, you are very different than some of the Dutch museums. For instance, the Rijksmuseum does the blockbuster exhibitions. They try to pull in the crowds. They are the ones who are, for instance, um, catering to the Dutch public, but also the many foreigners that come through Amsterdam um, on a daily basis, but mostly in the summer, I can tell you as someone who lives there. Uh, that's changed a lot, of course, since the pandemic. But at the end of the day, uh, one of the things that's quite beautiful about the many different museums in the Netherlands is that because they each have their own specialization, um, you get to focus on very niche topics. For instance, I'm not sure which museum it was at the off the top of my head at the moment, but there was an exhibition, I believe about two years ago, about trees which was rather beautiful. And I discovered in my own research back in 2015, while working on Franz Hals's family portraits, that no one has specialized in, for instance, trees and Dutch paintings. Mm -hmm. But if, for instance, you read Anna Tummer's book on connoisseurship of 17th century paintings, that's because trees usually were not the main element of a painting. So that was not given so much attention to in the 17th century. But simultaneously, that was also where you could find the trademark or the signature brushwork of an old master painter. So talking on this topic of specializations, for instance, in 2020, there was an exhibition here at the museum on the landscapes of North Holland, which to anybody who's not been to North Holland or perhaps uh, has an affinity who does live here for North Holland, uh, the landscape here is incredibly special. That's because it's always mostly flat, which creates these vistas of empty skies with like the puffiest and the extremely low-hanging billowing clouds, which is to name one example. So being this quite um, niche museum, um, what are some of, for instance, um, over the years, perhaps topics that you've been able to brainstorm up for exhibitions that are very niche, even if they didn't come to fruition, that you would not be able to do in a museum, for instance, like the Rijksmuseum, where you're always focusing on Rembrandt or um, a similar figure with the goal of attracting the large crowds? Well, you said it right. There are so many museums in the Netherlands that you can't afford to do what the Rijksmuseum or the Frans Hals Museum do. You can't just do Golden Age subjects in general or uh, do anything with Rembrandt because the Rijksmuseum will do it better um, and will attract more people with it. because. So we, we, we try, and we have tried since the founding of this museum, to focus on our region. 
that's a region we cater for, mm -hmm. and that's also the region that subsidizes us. So mm -hmm. we feel an obligation also to, um, to to bring topics, to, to research topics that are related to our region and to our city. Uh, so we have always, from the beginning, I think, of the, the this museum, focused on artists and art that have something to do, uh, and it could be anything, with this city and this region. Um, and the past few years, we have focused on bringing to the fore artists that have not received much attention, because much attention is always given to Frans Hals, Vermeer, Frans Hals, and uh, Rembrandt, um, but that have either worked in or uh, were born in Alkmaar. And um, that were worthy of more attention. Mm -hmm. um, because, for instance, in their own time, they had quite some fame. So Cesar van Everdingen was one of them. He is, he's a, I call him an art historian's artist. So art historians know who he is and that he worked in the Oranjezaal, uh, in Huis ten Bosch, the palace of Frederick Henry and Amalia van Sos. Um, but he's not known by the general public. And he has never received a monographic exhibition, even though his work is very much worthy of that. So we, we started researching him, and luckily there was already a monographic uh, book on him, a very good good book, that uh, with an inventory of all his work, existing work. And we, as a museum, luckily already had 13 works by the master. And uh, you must know that his oeuvre is uh, consisting of large, rather large paintings, but it's a small oeuvre of about 60 paintings. So mm -hmm. we had a good start. And we did the research with a group of people, because that's what I naturally do, I, uh, I attract people to do it with me. So I had a group of researchers and we wrote a book on him and we had an exhibition on him in 2016. And it was a, it was a, a nice success because um, we, we didn't bring it to the public as if they should already know him. We, we knew that people didn't know the name. So we, we had this, I think, really attractive um, uh, poster so that people were lured by the art itself and then got to know the artist. And okay, well, okay, so this is Cesar van Evelyn. Okay, well, I learned a thing or two. And I like his paintings. And we did that for a lot of artists, I think, that were already known in the literature, but not uh, known by the general public. One of the things that makes um, Dutch Golden Age uh, painters, uh, which is a tricky topic these days, which we can get into later, but let's say 17th century painters, is that even though, for instance, you might have been born in Alkmaar, you might have trained in Harlem and then moved to Amsterdam, for instance. So these artists were always on the move, which has, of course, been studied, I believe, at the University of Amsterdam mostly. Uh, Martin Jan Bach was uh, very, very um, into this research at the time. Um, but in terms of actually moving around, but then coming back home, for instance, in the case of uh, the Everdingers, which we'll speak about a bit more in a bit, um, for instance, even though they might have moved away and come back, what is it that makes Alkmaar artists Alkmaarian? What is their <laughs> trademark? Well, I must stress that the artists that were born here and that were really talented or really good, they moved away. Okay. So uh, Cesar, <laughs> he, he moved back. That's true. Yeah. Cesar moved back at the end of his life when his father died and mm -hmm. the house where he was born and grew up in came, became available. And he, he moved back and he, he sort of, you see how he uh, kept good relations with people in Alkmaar because he kept getting uh, commissions from Alkmaar uh, institutions such as the Civic Arts and the Town Hall. So he kept doing work for Alkmaar, but Allard really moved away. 
he, he went to uh, Harlem and then Amsterdam and he never got back. But of course, he did go back to visit his parents or his brother. Um, but the thing is, when they're talented, they move away because Alkmaar is too small. Alkmaar at the time had about 12,000 12, inhabitants, 13,000. It grew a bit, of course, in the 17th century. But in the 17th century, it's not, it's like a middle-sized town. If you made a portrait of some of the more important regions, you know, you're done. And Harlem is usually the next step for these artists. Okay. And then if they feel they can make it, they go to Amsterdam, which of course has many more artists. And But still, if you have the right niche, you can make it there. Part of the reason that, for instance, the Averdingers have gotten so much attention um, as opposed to, for instance, um, Reisdahl or Rembrandt, who are equally as um, well-known in their lifetimes, but for instance, the different Aberdingers were not as contextualized in museum studies or in exhibitions, for instance, at museums until, let's say, the past 20 years. Mm -hmm. Which brings us to the very first solo exhibition of Aller from Aberdinger, which you have arranged here at the museum. And everyone who knows a bit about Dutch Golden Age painting knows that Allard is mostly known for his Scandinavian landscapes. Um, waterfalls is usually the main um, uh, idea brought to mind. And if you've been to the Rijksmuseum and you're well aware of his painting that's monumental of the Swedish landscape, that's probably what most people associate with this artist. So my first question um, around this exhibition is, when did the planning begin for it? Because we're now in 2022. So to let people know how long it actually takes to plan and make an exhibition, and why did it take so long for him to be recognized as a painter in his own right beyond just his work in Scandinavian landscapes? Well, around 2010, when uh, a new director had, had been here for about two years who had ambitious plans, she was very ambitious, she still is, Vida by the Kukuk, she started in 2008. And uh, she appointed me in 2009. And before that, you have to realize there was no designated curator in this museum. The director was always sort of cur curator director. And she was very good, I, I want to add. But she did both jobs. Mm -hmm. And the budget of the museum was quite slim at the time. And the staff was also small. So she didn't have much to go on. And then a new director was appointed. And she was ambitious and um, she also led our main subsi subsidy giver the municipal government mm -hmm. know that she wanted to you know bring something to the city make make the city better because of what the museum does here and if it's more ambitious and it attracts more visitors she made the government here the local government aware that that helps the city because people who come here to see our exhibitions because they are you know something people talk about they also go into the city and they might buy something in our shops and they might have a bite to eat in some, some of the restaurants or they might visit the theater afterwards. So it brings something to the city. And she made the local government very much aware of that, I think. And also our local government has always been uh, very generous towards us. So the subsidy grew and the staff also grew. So she appointed me and then we started talking about, okay, what do we want to do? If we Imagine we have all the money in the world. What would we do? So we, we, we thought of a list. Then we thought of the plan of, of bringing artists to the fore who had not um, received attention recently, but who were worthy of attention. So we drew up a list of artists that we could think of that we want to highlight. And Jacob Cornelis van Oostana was one of them. The brothers van Everdingen were one of them. We just looked at our own collection and thought, what are the, what's the good stuff? What's, what's the best we have? And how can we highlight that? working from our own permanent collection. 
So we drew up a list, and, and many of these names that we have actually made exhibitions on the past years were on the list. Um, so we, we already knew that we were going to work on the Evelinger Brothers in 2010. I was very much aware of that. But we had to show what we can do before we can attract more money. You know, money attracts money. So you have to make sure that first you sort of go out of your way and work your ass off before you can have your first real ambitious project. And if it works, then you it's easier to get money. So the first large project was the Jacob Cornelius van Oostana project. And we did it together with the Amsterdam Museum because we didn't, well, obviously because it was very nice to work with them and, and two is better than one, mm -hmm. uh, but also because we really didn't really know how to do this. So we learned from them and it was a wonderful project, wonderful. And we attracted a guest curator who was already a specialist in the oeuvre, Daantje Meerwissen. And it was, wow, we learned so much in those three, four years. Um, so we learned what, what is needed in a museum to be able to get these loans, very fragile loans. Uh, and it worked. Uh, and we learned what, how, how to go about it, what to do. And then right after, well, during the, the organization of the Osan exhibition, I started working on the Cesar van Evening exhibition. I think I started in 2012 mm -hmm. and it was opened in 2016. And I already knew when I started on Cesar, I knew that I was also going to do all art. So I sort of kept an eye open for everything relating to all art that I might be able to use. But I couldn't really work on it because I was busy doing Cesar. But as soon as the Cesar van Evening exhibition was opened, I started working on all art and it took five years to get it done because it's a large oeuvre, much larger than his brother's oeuvre. He made nearly two, two, 200 paintings and about 100 etchings and uh, uh, more than 650 drawings. So it's a much larger oeuvre. And I understand much of his work is actually undated as well. Um, so could you speak about how you actually went about uh, presenting this in different categories? Um, starting from the starting point of actually having no dating to work with. Yeah, that was really complicating because <laughs> Cesar dated a lot of his paintings up until from the first to the last. But for Allard, there's a few paintings dated, about 20 uh, of the more than 180 that are there. So that's not a large part. And the dates are, most of them are early. So from his early work, as if he wanted to say, be aware, I'm the one who does this, who specializes like this, who, who does these, these Scandinavian landscapes. I feel like he, he does it to, to really uh, make a name for himself. But then he sort of stops dating. And there's a few dates at the end of his oeuvre, but that's it. So you don't have much to go on. But we do have an impression of how he evolves as a painter. There, there Some research has already had already been done on that by Alice Davies. Yeah. Uh, she wrote two books on on Allard, one on his paintings and one on his drawings. And they're really, she's, um, yeah, she's sort of putting the oeuvre together. And she did a very good job on that. So, so it was a good start for us. But we also try to keep a, a fresh, an open eye for anything that we might think was different. And it's not that much, but it was in some details. We thought it may have been a bit different. Um, but we then we started uh, looking at the etchings, and none of them were dated. But of course, there's watermarks in the pa in the paper. And Eric Hinterding, who was one of the team members, of the research team from the Rex uh, Museum, he's a specialist yes. in watermarks. So yes. we researched the watermarks in the Rex Museum, and 
we didn't even have to pay for that. I'd like to stress how how well the Rijks Museum works together, how well the Rijks Museum is for us as a big brother helping us out time and again. So they they did the watermark research at the Rijks Museum and found out that the watermarks are all datable um, after 16, 1650. And knowing that Allard moved to Amsterdam in 1652, we thought it was safe to say that the etching activity is part of something he started in Amsterdam mm-hmm. and not in Haarlem, which he could have because Haarlem was also a printing center, but he probably didn't need to do it there. So he went to Amsterdam and then started the printing. So that was sort of a time frame that we could base on the watermarks. But then the drawings, all of them are good. He's such an accomplished draftsman. And there's nothing to go on. Um, there's no dates, none at all. And for some drawings from the subject, we can see that he did it in Amsterdam, or we can guess that he did it in Amsterdam because it's an Amsterdam scene, and well, it's not impossible that he did that when he worked in Haarlem, but it's more, it's logical that he did it when he worked in Amsterdam. But there's hardly anything to go on. So you will see in our catalog that um, Eric and I wrote our essays on the uh, etchings and the, draw- and the paintings, respectively. We try to give some sort of chronology, so to sort of, sort of give an impression of how this artist evolved mm-hmm. um, in terms of iconography, in terms of style. But Ivana Blijerveld, the yep. researcher who, who uh, worked on the drawings, she worked uh, thematically in her essay. She, she highlighted some... Uh, the larger drawings, the the way he uses color, the smaller, the very small drawings that he made, drawings made in series. So she highlighted different parts of the large earth of drawings, and I think she did a good job. But you will see in the exhibition, we try to do take people by the hand and lead them through the life of this artist mm-hmm. because we want to have this personal touch, and I think we're able to give it because we know some things about his life. You know, we, we know when he traveled to Scandinavia, we know when he moved to Harlem, and we know when he got married, and we know when he moved to Amsterdam. So I try to take our visitor through Allard's life and showing paintings, drawings, and etchings that relate to these periods. But there are some etchings in the first part of the exhibition, whereas I know that he only made them after his move to Amsterdam. But when you show a probably early a painting of, uh, for instance, rocks. He loves rocks. So a rocky coast. I added an etching of a rocky coast <laughs> to show that he's interested in that motif. Yeah. And he, he researches that. So I took some liberty of showing drawings that I have absolutely no idea when they were made in parts of the exhibition when I see their fit. Mm-hmm. So I took some liberty, but I think I kept a good track of the storyline that we're uh, developing that is uh, sort of unfolding in the galleries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, But you, you have to, we, we, that was, you, you do touch on the most difficult aspect of this, of putting together this exhibition. We kept going back and forth with our prints of the artwork saying, where does this fit best? Especially the drawings. It was just a matter of, okay, we, we don't know when they were made. So we have to think, where do they fit best? What combinations of drawings and paintings and etchings work best to show what this artist is doing? So the, the paintings are the real backbone of, yep. the, of the chronology. I think they are usually in the right place. I think I didn't make too many mistakes with that. And then there's the, the drawings that go best with these paintings. And then there's the etchings that show the motifs, mostly. Well, also one of the challenges, especially when you compare the paintings, which is around 180 to, for instance, 650 drawings, yeah. 
uh, Ivana Blierfeld, who, as you mentioned, wrote the article and studied the drawings mm -hmm. and the etchings and the prints. Um, I mean, you can't even begin to um, try to create a chronological no. framework out of 650 no. drawings. Um, one of the really fascinating things about his work is that he was trained by, it's thought, Peter de Malign when he again moved to Harlem. And Peter de Malign is actually increasingly becoming recognized as one of the premier landscape painters. Um, for a long time, we thought it was actually um, Jan van Goya, who was um, uh, the, the, the largest, most well-known. That's usually because he has over a thousand paintings to his name, for instance. Uh, but Reisdal, as we mentioned, was equally as important, and they were all sort of in the same milieu, for instance. But you also write in the catalog that Allert and Reisdale go back and forth. They're actually working and playing off each other, for instance, with the rocks or, for instance, um, trees that are very much positioned in the foreground of a painting, which is very much a classics, classicism hallmark of uh, these classicist landscape painters. So could you talk about uh, a bit about, before we go downstairs, to actually look at these works in context in the exhibition hall itself? Um, how these artists played off each other to innovate their own work uh, in the context of landscapes. Yeah, that was one of the other conversations we had time <laughs> again with the research team. Who is, who is influencing who and um, for what reason? You know, if, if you're trying to find out who, who he was training with, yeah, we're only informed by uh, on that by uh, Arnold Haubrak, who who uh, wrote on several artists in the early 18th century after Allard died, and he was usually well informed, and he he knew Allard's uh, son, so he probably was well informed. But he makes some mistakes on Allard's biography. I think he he was not well informed on some very uh, sort of easy data, but. Um, he, he says that Allard trained with Peter de Molijn mm -hmm. and then um, yeah, Roland Savray. <laughs> I've been telling this too much, <laughs> too many times. Roland Savray and Peter de Molijn. But then uh, someone pointed out that Halbrake uh, mistakes the name de Molijn sometimes for Mulier. Yes. So it could also be Mulier. And, and thinking of Allard's oeuvre, uh, he starts out. I think he planned on being a marine painter. That the first paintings we know are marines. And then Mullier is a more logical uh, a teacher. So we're not sure, and we, we are just in the catalog restating this problem that it might actually be the Molijn, but it might also be Mullier. We just don't really know. Yeah. And uh, both were in Haarlem at the time, so it could have been both. Um, but on the other hand, there's a, an obvious influence by the Molijn. But you don't. You can influence another artist by other ways than being a teacher. Uh, one of the things we actually forgot to mention is, for those who don't know, is Arnold Halbrachen was a painter himself and a biographer uh, in the tradition of Vasari, who was paint, uh, painting, of course, but he was also writing uh, and composed a book called The Great Theater of Painters and Painteresses from about six, 1780 to 1721, I believe. And... Um, this is, for instance, how we know that Allard von Everdinger actually went to Scandinavia first. Yeah, we know that from his oeuvre, because he made uh, drawings that are actually, you can pinpoint them on the map. You can see where he went. And um, there's a, a group of copies after drawings by Allard yeah. that have dates. Ah. And we think the copies were made with, well, of course, with the actual drawings by Allard von Everdinger next to them. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the copyist on the Bayer must have seen these drawings and may have known a bit more about them than we do. Mm -hmm. And he wrote on one that it was in 1644. Mm -hmm. 
he himself not living in 1644, so it was not his date. Yeah. And then on the other hand, we know that Allard kept, he keeps popping up in archives because his father was a notary and mm-hmm. he asked Allard to be a, a witness when he draws his deeds. So Allard is constantly popping up in the archives, but not in 1644. Mm-hmm. He's away. Therefore, from we know. Archives. So that's why we know he is away from Holland. We, we think we can infer from that that he's away from Holland. But I must say that he's away from the summer of 1643 until February 1645 when he marries. So there's a bit larger time frame. Uh, and we, we explain that in the catalog. Mm-hmm. But we did decide on 1644 thinking that if we look at the map and the places he went, we don't feel he's been away for too long, like several months. Not longer than that. You might find more archival data on him in Scandinavia. We don't. There has not been found any data on him in Scandinavia, and mm-hmm. there has been um, searches. Um, so he must have been there for, you know, as a tourist, a few months. And um, also we have this date on the copies of his drawings, 1644. So we, we took that uh, into account also. Uh, and the shipping season, he, he, he traveled on a ship, obviously, and the shipping season runs from March till about December. We don't see any snow in any of his drawings or paintings. And snow starts in that area and around October. Mm-hmm. So from all of that, we can infer he, he didn't go there in the summer of 1643 and sort of stayed over and went back in the summer of 1644. We would have seen snow. So he probably went in early in, in the spring of 1644 and went back by September, October 1644. Which is fascinating. And again, I think goes back to your original research yeah, in newsprints to be yeah, able yeah. to have this kaleidoscopic viewpoint. So Definitely. that even though Halbrocken might be trusted, you still have to look at copies of drawings, yeah. his you drawings. Put it all together. Exactly. And it's only convincing if you see it all together. If you use only Halbrocken, it's not convincing and not complete. You don't have a date. If you only look at the copies, I'm not exactly sure, but if you also take into account the archival data, then you have a sort of set that thinks, okay, I'm pretty sure it's 1644. So that's what I say in the catalog. We use 1644, but you must know that it could be anything from the summer of 1643 up until February 1645. That's the beauty of using different sources, that you might not be able to get to the exact point, but you can create a framework around it. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what I like about it. Creating a context and, and creating a story in doing so. Yeah. And with that, let's maybe head into the exhibition. So we're now standing in the gallery here at the Staterlich Museum in Alkmaar, and we're in the exhibition hall itself. Pascal Vosen went to Norway and Sweden with Christie to document some of the spaces that were actually portrayed by Allard during his travels there. Um, Could you speak a bit about um, the importance or the necessity or the value of um, having a contemporary artist um, commission works um, that would accompany um, the exhibition itself and what that adds in terms of um, the experience of the visitor? Yeah, I would. Um, with every exhibition we make, we put together, uh, usually when I work on them, it's old masters. We always try to think of ways to bring them close to the now, to the, to the public, the 21st century public, because these artworks are very far away from us in terms of time. And our job as a curator is to bring them 
to you to, to make them um, understandable and to uh, give them context and to show people how they came about and what they meant in their own time. But I also want them to mean something to people now. So sometimes we use, we use well, sounds a bit nasty, but we, we attract contemporary artists such as photographer Pascal Fossa to, to help us with that, to look at the old masters themselves and be inspired by them and make new works on the basis of that inspiration. And I think it really helps to, to, to bring it close, to bring the old masters close. So it's really a way to make our old masters exhibitions feel very modern, very of this day. It's also um, a growing trend, and we spoke a bit before about the Maritz House and how Emily Gordinker in 2016 commissioned Vic Muniz to create sculptures of the back of paintings um, of the, for instance, the girl with the pearl earring to sort of bridge that gap between the past and today. So I think when you actually show, um, uh, for instance, modern, uh, yeah, present-day pictures of the Scandinavian landscape, people will instantly be able to bridge the two in their mind, which is yeah. very helpful for visitors, as you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, and, and it, it shouldn't be a, a sort of um, uh, automatic thing. So it's not like we think, oh, we're making an old master's exhibition, uh, we should bring in a contemporary artist. Yeah. We always think, or we're making an old master's exhibition. It could be that it's sort of strange to people, so what's the best way to bring it to the now? Yeah, because part of um, a museum, as we spoke about before, is sharing uh, the knowledge and inviting people in. And this yeah, is exactly. one way to expand yeah. upon that idea. Yeah, and making, uh, enabling them to identify with the works, not in a sense of, uh, oh, it's about me, because, you know, it's not. It's, it's made 400 years ago. But when people went to, many people who visit, we know, went to a, a Scandinavia or, or very much love Scandinavia to go on to uh, on holiday or they are climbers and they come here there's many people here that i see that are wearing scandinavian sweaters That's fun. <laughs> so people do feel that personal connection and you have to enable enable them to make that connection stronger and bringing in these photos these recent photos of the same locations where allard went helps people identify with the work beautifully said uh, before we actually enter the main hall itself, I'd like you to speak a bit about what we'll see inside. For instance, we're standing here and we can see the entryway with the signage, um, a bit of a landscape that's um, taken up one space of an entire wall. We have green as an entry color to sort of create the context of being in the landscape itself. Of course, we have a wall text which everyone knows and usually people stop at to sort of get an idea, especially if you're just visiting to have a coffee and you have no idea what's happening. But from an, um, the standpoint of the actual exhibition design, before we enter, um, could you speak a bit about what you wanted people to feel when they entered the space uh, without knowing, for instance, anything about Allard von Everdinge or, for instance, his work? Well, we, we work with uh, exhibition designers when we make an exhibition. So I don't design, I don't choose the colors on the wall. I don't choose the typography. We have specialists for that, but we work together the whole project. So it's not like I hand over my research and they do their thing with it. We, we do it together. And the first thing that designers usually ask me, the ones that we work with, they usually start our cooperation with 
what story are you trying to convey? What mm. message? If, if you only had three lines, what message would you like to convey? And we think of that message as a team also. So we all, there's no such thing as an exhibition that just sort of shows the oeuvre, because you never have the whole oeuvre, so usually not. Uh, so you're always choosing, and you better highlight how you chose. So for Allard, we had already decided as a team that we we're gonna highlight first that he was the master of the rugged landscape. Mm -hmm. At first it's usually an actual Scandinavian landscape, but later on in his career it starts to be a little less um, uh, topographically uh, correct. So it's, it's a mingling of different locations, uh, but still it's always rugged, large rocks, log cabins, wild waterfalls, so it's always rugged. So we, we will, uh, the first thing that I want you to remember when you have left the exhibition is that this is the master of the rugged landscape. But the second message, well, the message sort of related to that is he was that master because he went there. He actually went to Scandinavia. That's one thing that I really like about this specialization. He, he, he picked it up after he had gone there and he had seen the landscape. So that's a related message that we want people to remember. And then the third message is, but he made so much more. It's not just the rugged landscape. He also made beautiful Dutch landscapes, for instance. And that message, those three messages, I want them to unfold gradually. In the, so that's what I said to the designer. The first message is, he's the master of the rugged landscape. That's the first thing people must see about him, even if they don't know anything about him. Because he went there, so the, the trip is also a large part of our story. But there's so much more, and that's the la last thing I want people to understand, because I don't want to confuse them right away. So she picked that up, she, she, she worked with that, and she said, okay, then we'll use not just greens, as you would expect for a landscape exhibition, but also light blues for the large skies that you see in the paintings and the drawings of the Dutch landscape. Mm -hmm. And we'll move from the dark greens to the light blues. And uh, we'll do it with um, um, sort of stickers on the wall that, that are gradually changing from dark green to light blue. It's very expensive, that's <laughs> why I highlight it. <laughs> it's not just, you can't paint it. You can't yeah. paint a gradual... Of course not. You know, so we used um, wall coverings, mm -hmm. you know, sort of large stickers. Um, and it moves from very dark green where you feel, well, we hope that people feel like they're in some sort of dark forest in Scandinavia. And the, wills, the walls that we built inside our gallery are pretty high. And then you move to the back of the gallery where the Dutch landscapes are unfolding and you see, oh, this is, oh, this is a surprise, you also made this. And then you will see that the walls are very light blue and, and the walls that we built in the gallery are much lower as, you know, in, in Holland we don't have mountains. So the designer, Jelena Stevanovic, she was really essential in helping us convey our story in another way than just text. You know, I can write a text and explain what's going on, but she makes people actually feel like they're in a mountain, dark mountain landscape and or in the empty uh, Dutch landscape where you can look so far away and where the sky is high and light. That's the beauty of a designer, especially a graphic yes. designer. They can use color to evoke emotion. Yeah, but also a light designer. We also have a, a lighting specialist mm -hmm. uh, who works with Jelena and uh, he, 
he helps us also with the way the artworks are lit. So in, in the first part where it's dark green and you're in this sort of mountain landscape, there the light is only on the artworks and the rest is pretty dark. And then as you move further uh, in the gallery, you will notice that it becomes lighter and lighter and lighter until you're at the end where the Dutch landscapes are. And the light is very bright. Well, let's, with that, have a look at the actual gallery spaces and talk a bit about um, the challenges in exhibiting drawings as opposed to paintings in regards to lighting. Yeah. Uh, so we're actually in the exhibition space itself, and we can see the different wall heights and the different colors of gradients from green to light blue representing the different works of Aller van Everdinger. Could you speak a bit about the exhibition as a physical space, Christine? Well, our exhibition gallery, our large gallery, is... Uh pretty much a rectangle. It's, it's not, it, as it's a modern building, it's, it doesn't have any atmosphere from itself. We can give it to this space, which is a good thing. I consider, consider that a positive thing. We can do with it whatever we want. So uh, you will notice if you see more exhibitions here that each exhibition, this, this room is transformed. It's, it, every time it's completely different. The walls that we build inside the rectangle are constantly changing. We always reuse materials as much as possible, of course, but it's constantly changing. Sometimes we build in sort of cabinets, mm -hmm. and sometimes, as now, we build in some sort of mountain landscape. Not in an anecdotal kind of way, you know, it's, it's, uh, they're pretty abstract. But still, I, I feel, I think people do notice and feel like they're surrounded by mountains in the beginning of the exhibition and gradually going to a more open space at the end of the exhibition gallery. But the gallery itself is just a modern large box <laughs> that we did our thing with. And it's always nice when we install an installation to see it coming to life and to see it becoming what we want it to become. Uh, with every, every artwork that's installed, and at first when the walls are painted or covered uh, and when the typography is added, you know, you see it think, oh wow, this is actually working because I have to judge it from just drawings or images on my computer. And we keep thinking, okay, is this right? Did we do this right? Is this the right color? Isn't it too dark? Isn't it too light? Will people get it? <laughs> and then when it comes to life and you think, yeah, yeah, this is working. Because you can't really change anything at the end. No. No. And in some ways, especially with a space that um, is essentially a box, like you said, even though this is supposed to represent a landscape in itself, the view that we're standing in with the angled walls is actually quite reminiscent of a grand hallway, for instance, in a chateau with all the rooms off of it. So yeah. in some ways you've created dramaticism yeah. with just as few simple walls. Yeah, and we also, of course, try to lead people through the story. So you also sometimes People can wander around. Sometimes that's our concept, that they can just go to whatever attracts them. Sometimes that's the idea. But usually we try to lead them from one concept to the other or one theme to the other. Yeah. Not too many themes because people, you know, you're standing and you don't know anything. So people get confused easily. So we try to be very clear on what we're, uh, on the structure of our story. Um, but here we also thought constantly, we kept thinking, okay, is this the most logical way people will walk? And in the end, we did decide to number the labels with the artworks mm -hmm. to make sure that people could easily find their way or the storyline that we wanted to present. But there's parts of the exhibition where we, uh, where we know that we don't mind if you, you, know, you go to some other part of the room. It doesn't really matter. But the beginning is, in the beginning, we talk about how he came to his special specialization because of his story. And I do want people to get that first because it really puts it all into context. So 
the structure, I think, is in the beginning more important than the end. <laughs> well said. And uh, before we deep dive into some of the specific sections to talk about uh, some of the actual artworks in detail that you might think are exemplary of his different periods, um, in your speech that you gave for the opening of the exhibition in September, I believe it was 2001? Yes. I think you mentioned Fritz Dupark, the former director of the Moritz House, said, no more than three waterfalls. <laughs> so yes. now that we're actually standing in the space, will I see more than three waterfalls? I did, I think for the paintings it's three, but it's three of the most typical Allard waterfalls, where the waterfalls are in the forefront of the painting and are the actual subject, but there's a bit more, there's a waterfall, for instance, right where we stand, but that's more to the side and it's not the main subject, so yeah. I sort of smuggled that one in. Well, I'm sure and, he's uh, teasing, of uh, Yeah, <laughs> but, he is, but he was right though, he was right, because I could have filled this gallery with, with waterfalls, waterfalls and it would have you know, shown what he was a master of, but it would also, it would also have been really boring. That's true. Really, really boring. I could easily have made a, make a, have made a boring exhibition. exhibition. <laughs> um, so there's three waterfalls in the paintings and I think there's three more in the drawings and one in the etchings. I, I think I smuggled a few in based on the different media. <laughs> well, this goes back again to your original research as a PhD researcher in a disciplinary um, approach to things, because indeed, if you did make uh, an exhibition on waterfalls, you would have not uh, had a specialist such as Eric uh, Hinterding or Yvonne Blyerfeld help you with prints, drawings, which really contextualizes his work. Yeah. So let's go ahead and take um, a deep dive into some of the exemplary works of the different categories that you've created for mm -hmm. the exhibition. So we first mentioned when we walked into the exhibition how Christy had uh, Pascal um, travel with her to Norway and Sweden to document some of the spaces that Allard actually uh, portrayed in some of his works. And we again have noted that they are not dated, um, but we are now standing in front of a work, again undated, called View of the Harbor at uh, Reiser. Could you speak a bit about uh, this drawing in relation to your time and your travels to Norway and Sweden? Yeah, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why we know that he traveled to Norway is the existence of a series of drawings, the same size, same watermark, probably from the same sketchbook that he probably took with him on his travel and that he filled with um, images of what he encountered, landscapes that he encountered. And one of them, well, actually two of them are here on the wall. One is uh, indeed a view of the harbor at Reiser in uh, southern Norway, Trondheim Museum, and I, when I went to Norway, because I, I kept feeling when we did our research as a group, I increasingly felt the urge to go to the places Allard visited, because it felt sort of the opposite was also true. It felt strange to not go there while we know which places he visited. I went to my director and I said, well, it's not like I have a plan of what I'm going to do there, yeah. apart from just being there, looking around and seeing what it looks like now and compare it to the drawings. But I feel that it's so strange to not go there. It's not that far away. So he said immediately, yeah, go there. Because usually when you go somewhere and you do have a plan, you come back with all sorts of extra data that you gathered that you didn't foresee. So why wouldn't that now be, not be the case? So go there and take a photographer so that uh, we, we will probably be able to use those photos in the catalog or in the exhibition. And if not, well, we better just have it, that, that material. So I went with Pascal, who is a Dutch photographer, but he lived in Sweden for a long time, so okay. he speaks the language. Um, and we took prints of the artworks, of Allard's artworks, of many artworks. 
and especially, of course, the prints of artworks that we think were directly inspired by his trip. So this drawing that you see here, I took a print of it with me, and when I visited Rieser with Pascal, we showed it to, when we were in a restaurant or a gas station, we showed it to people who lived there do and said, do you this? recognize it? Is this your country? And for this drawing, the harbor at Rieser, all these people said, yeah, this is, this is my town, this is Rieser, <laughs> this is the island of Holmen. This, oh. this island you see, it's the island of Holmen. It, and it has now been flattened and building activity is going on. They're building houses on it. But people recognized it instantly. No problem. <laughs> so, and I showed them more and other paintings and drawings and I could see how the, the paintings that we thought were a bit further down in the, in the lifetime of all art, so yeah. made later, where we already thought this is sort of an unidentifiable landscape. They, they said that too. They said this part looks Scandinavian, but that part does not look Scandinavian at all. It's sort of a mingling of, of, of lands, of countries. Uh, so that sort of, um, well, my hypothesis uh, was right. <laughs> so as far as the trip, as Allard's trip was more further behind him, he kept getting more uh, free with the experience and using it freely. Yeah, more to freely sort of be able to recombine elements and create new views that yeah. are indeed imaginary. Yeah. From his from his Im imagination more than before. So these these drawings, the drawings that are hanging in the in the, in the first part of the exhibition, I think you, you this is the closest you can get to his trip. The most authentic, let's say, views yes. in their their yes. natural state as he saw yeah. them. And we kept we kept discussing are these actually made in Norway, like this? Because if they were, they would probably be more dirty. You know, they would have traveled too, right? So they may have been a more faults or they have stains, and they don't. No. And that may have been because of uh, restoration or uh, conservation treatment, I'm not entirely sure. But they do look... Yvonne kept saying, our drawing specialist, she kept saying, they do look composed. They do look like their constructions. And these washes, it's not easy to do that when you're sitting outside in daylight. In no. daylight. So maybe he, he made the first sketch outside and then went in or went home or went to Holland and did the rest. We kept, we kept going back to that and we're and we not entirely sure. So that's one of the things why we, I think I also say it in the gallery text, we, he made them there or shortly after. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the beauties of studying art is that, for instance, for situations like this, you can never really know. Uh, it can keep you busy till the end of time getting yes. closer to knowing. Yes, you have to sort of settle with not knowing everything. And uh, I'm okay with that, yeah. you know. Um, we did this research and it's for other art historians to take it one step further. <laughs> Beautifully said. Well, we're, we're standing now at the, one of the most mysterious objects in the exhibition, I think, um, where that raises many questions and we have not been able to answer them all, as you know, it's, uh, you have to get used to that when you work with old masters. It's a, it's a book, an album with uh, oil sketches, but they're really oil, sort of oil paint drawings. They're not very sketchy, that's what I'm trying to say. They're not sketchy, they're <laughs> well detailed yes. and they look like they could be sold one to each buyer but they haven't been sold they are preserved as a series and the first leaf in the book says that it used to be 47 of these brunei drawings the drawings in, in brown uh, 
in brown uh, hues. And to specify, we're talking about drawings that are smaller than a bank card, yes, for instance. Yes, very small. Yeah, just a few centimeters, like a four to nine centimeters, I think. Um, and it's a series, it should be a series of 47, but right now in the book there's 38. So there's nine missing, but uh, a few have been found in uh, private collections, not by me, by Alice Davies. That's special. Yeah. Uh, one in a private collection and one in the Stichting de Boer collection mm -hmm. in Amsterdam. Uh, that's actually a series of three. So four have been found of the nine that are lost. And one we know from a photograph because it was exhibited at the RKD in The Hague. Uh, so there's still a few that are lost, but still you can see that it's preserved as a series. Now, one of the questions is, what, why did Allard make these Brunei uh, paintings, drawings? Um, were they meant to be sold one by one? Well, obviously not, because he kept, he kept them all together. Um, were they uh, meant as a series of drawings that you could keep in a, in a book and sell to someone? Well, they're very much alike. The series has, for instance, a few drawings are uh, rock to the left, uh, boat in the middle, and then a few people on the right. And then the next drawing is rock in the middle, people on the left, boat on the right. And then the next is boat on the right, rock. <laughs> well, it just goes on and on, and it all seems so alike. So the best hypothesis we could come up with, um, and Alice Dullard, uh, a landscape specialist, she studied this book. The best hypothesis we could come up with is that since they were, judging from the style, made in the early phases of his career, they are probably some sort of exercise, a sort of training in the use of motifs mm -hmm. that he obviously loved, large rock formations, uh, trees on rocks, wild waters. He loves that, ships. He kept, he kept using them the whole uh, career. And also we think that he started out as a marine painter and only changed to landscapes after he had visited yep. Scandinavia. So we think this may have been some sort of booklet where he well, trained his hand in the use of motifs in compositions. Because, well, if it... But then we, we thought maybe it was not just that, but also some sort of um, uh, example book that you could show to possible customer customers and say, okay, what sort of composition do you want? Do you want the rock on the left or on the right? <laughs> but then you would expect to find paintings that that are the same as some of these drawings, and we didn't. We found not one painting that is actually the same in terms of composition. So we, we think that this hypothesis is not right and we stuck to the one where he sort of trained himself and he kept it as a, well maybe as a motif book or some sort of youth memory. <laughs> well, if, anyway, if anything, it's a nice memento or keepsake or documentation of his time before he went to Scandinavia and yeah. specialized in yeah. these subjects, even though And they're some beautiful, of the they're very present. detailed, they're very well worked out. They're, yeah, it's, they're nice paintings in their own right, but they weren't sold one by one, as for instance Van Gogh did. Yeah. Very special that it survived. Yeah. Yeah. If ever you find a small Brunei painting, please contact me, <laughs> because it might be one of the ones we're still missing. <laughs> We're standing here in front of one of Allard's few dated paintings from 1647, Mountain Landscape with the Follow Deer, um, on loan from the Herzog Anton Ulrich Museum. Could you speak a bit about the importance of his work, um, the importance of it being dated, and why it's a favorite among exhibition goers? <laughs> 
Yeah, it's dated 1647, and with that, it's one of the earliest dated um, uh, paintings because the earliest is 1646, but I can't find it. Okay. I don't know where it is. It's, uh, I know it from photos, but we don't know where it is. Uh, so this is, with that, this is one of the earliest I could get my hands on. And there's actually two from 1647 in our gallery. Mm -hmm. There's one on the other wall right next to us. And as you can see from both, and also from this one with the fallow deer, you can see that this is really, truly a rugged landscape. It seems inhabitable, and there are people there, but they're very small. You have to really look for them. They're not in your face. This doesn't look like a landscape that you could easily enter and walk through. It's very empty, and, and the rocks are large, and there's, there's trees, there's... Um, uh, these spruces, but not many of them. It's very rocky and it feels in a way desolate. And then there's on one of the rocks, there's a, a, a deer standing out against the light sky. And he likes to do that. You will find uh, deer or goats like that. Silhouetted. On, yes, silhouetted, exactly. Um, but this deer has two piercing eyes, black, black spots. And it stands there so beautiful with its antlers and people love this detail. So it's photographed <laughs> many times. And also the strange thing about this painting is if you look a bit from this, under raking light, you try to force raking light, raking light view, you will see that half of it was cleaned in the past and half of it has not been cleaned. It's still a bit yellowed. It's not that much, it's not um, in your face or or ugly at all. You have to notice it um, if you look a bit better, a bit closer up. And I asked the, the colleagues at the museum in Braunschweig if they knew what happened, why did they stop halfway cleaning the painting? And they couldn't find it in the records, so it has to be done, it, it has had to be done well, long ago, probably. Um, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't uh, you know. Detract. It, no, it doesn't detract at all, so it's fine. But it was some of this, this you, you sometimes stumble upon these puzzles that you can't solve. <laughs> but it's yeah, it's it's one of the typical early paintings. I'm glad that it's dated, but but still, I would have been able to date it early because these really uh, sort of people uh, landscapes without people or with just small people, and that seem really desolate. That's typical for the early phase because he starts to switch to the more friendly landscapes, the friendly rugged landscapes around 1650. I think he's still in Harlem. But especially in the Amsterdam period, he makes those almost nothing else. So now we're a bit uh, further into the exhibition, and we're still uh, looking at landscapes. But one of the things that we've noticed now in the exhibition is that the format is now vertical. The size becomes more monumental. And we're specifically standing in front of mountain landscape with a river and a castle, which is on loan from the Staten Museum in Copenhagen, um, which again, for a painter painting from Scandinavia, uh, landscapes, that is, is rather special in itself. Could you speak a bit about the importance of the size of this painting, um, the monumentality of the introduction of water as its main element, and the verticality as an element, as a physical object itself? Yeah, to start with the last uh, subject you're touching upon, it's, it's interesting to see how Allard decides I think around 1650, that he will not use the landscape format that we know is very, you know, uh, useful for landscapes, but twists the or turns the, the, the format and uses the vertical for format for his waterfalls especially. And it makes sense because the water seems to fall 
to rush down if you if you put it uh, on a vertical format and you uh, and it comes to the fore it also sort of comes to the foreground in a natural way so he keeps doing that he, he does make these more landscape format uh, the, the horizontal format, but he, he really prefers the vertical format, you see that. And then, as you said, he starts working on large canvases, uh, sort of around the 60s, we think, 1660s, but they're not dated, most of them, so we're not sure. Um, but Arnold Haubraken was not a fan of those large ones. He wrote at the beginning of the 18th century that uh, Allard van Evening was very good at Nordic land landscapes and it's such a sp nice specialty and he is really the master of the rugged landscape, but it's a shame that he wasted his, his, um, uh, his pencils on large canvases that are only hanging in the way. Rather opinionated author. <laughs> yeah. And I can see how you would think of them like that when you don't have museums yet. Mm -hmm. You know, the museums weren't around, people kept these in their house. Yeah, but these things, these large canvases of waterfalls, rushing waterfalls, and he was really good at portraying water. He knew that water is not blue or white. It takes on, you know, it's transparent. So you see what's underneath. And Allard usually really shows what's underneath. So the rocks, you see the dark rocks. And of course, the rushing water uh, has foam. So it's white in some places. And it has these, what do you call it, this, these currents. Uh, whirlpools. Yeah, sort of whirlpools at some places. And I talked to marine specialists, maritime specialists, historians, and they said that Allard really knows how water behaves. So he's good at these waterfalls. And when he does that on a larger scale, I think he's still very good at it. So I must say, I like the wall power of these large paintings, but I did select only two, keeping Arnold, Arnold Haubraken's uh, criticism in mind. <laughs> You, you can feel the force of the water raging down in yeah, front of us. For people instance. love this. I, I notice people love this uh, this painting because uh, you can. Yeah, it's we hung it a, a lot low, lower than it is in Copenhagen. It hangs high on the wall in Copenhagen, so you look in order up. Order to push yourself into the landscape. Yeah, and and you already when you're standing in front of this painting, which is higher than my size, it's a lot higher than I am. Uh, you already look up to the painting. Even it's, it's hanging very low here, and I already look up to what's in the painting, the large mountain with a castle on it. You, you look up to it, but if it's high on the wall, you, you look up to it, but you're not part of it. No. And I want people to feel like they're part of it, because I think that's what these paintings were made to do, make you feel like you're traveling even though you're in your own chair in your own house. And I love the detail of the drawing, the draftsman uh, to the left, that are uh, sitting or standing in front of the waterfall and obviously painting it or drawing it, making sketches of it. Um, you know, they must refer to Allard's own experience, even though I know there's lots of draftsmen in 17th century paintings and drawings, but I think, you know, since he actually did this, he must know what it feels like to stand in front of a waterfall like this and drawing it. <laughs> and part of the pleasure of looking at, a, especially a 17th century painting, um, especially one of this size, is uh, first being overwhelmed by its monumentality, but only after looking for a long time do we, for instance, notice in addition to yeah. the drawlers to the left at the yeah. bottom. Or the tree trunk. A tree trunk, the sheep, the boy climbing the hill, yeah. the sheep the in the background. The very white part of the water to the left where the waterfall sort of starts in the image, which really helps you Pull get a your grasp eyes of, around yeah, and yeah. And again, here is some, another distance. half ways, another very wide part. And then at the end, so that you really feel how the water is sort of going through the whole painting. <laughs> yeah, I love this one. 
And I love the soaring spruces, as Alice Davies calls them, the spruces pointing into the empty sky like statues. He loved those. He put them in lots of etchings and, and paintings. <laughs> Before we move on to the Dutch landscapes, for instance, where there will be a lack of soaring spruces, yes. one of the things that I read in the catalog is that you actually worked with horticultural specialists to identify some of the trees. Yes. Could you speak a bit about some of the various trees that return in some of his paintings and yeah. the specific types? Yeah, the, the, I, I worked with a biologist and I, uh, I, I send him trees from Allard's paintings every one in, once in a while, or um, animals for that matter. And I asked him, well, do you think this is just a sort of artist tree? Because many artists do have sort of their own tree mm -hmm. that they keep inserting in their land, landscapes. And the biologist, the first thing he said, and he did look at more painters and paintings uh, over the years, and he, the first thing he said was, wow, I can see that Allard really observed. He really looked at the trees and he didn't just make his own tree because this is really a Nordic spruce and this is really uh, an oak or this is really an, um, an ash. Or So he could pinpoint specific types of trees and obviously it's many times it's a Nordic spruce. But oak trees are in there uh, occasionally, and they are indeed found in southern Norway. Norway. Um, and there was an ash, and there's more, but uh, I forget them now. But um, you see the Nordic spruces all the time. But they're very true to life. And there was a larch right there. Uh, so I, it, it was very helpful to have him uh, look with me, because he has this completely different view of art you know I look at is the composition nice does he need the trees on the right does it balance something on the other side but he looks wow this is well observed this is what it looks like and he was also the one who pointed out to me that all that must have been there in sort of the sunny season mm -hmm. before he said, the snow. You, you see yeah before the snow but before the winter sets in yeah now in the end of the exhibition in the gallery at the, the far end of the exhibition you have, the, you have a, an abundance of drawings, and we did that on purpose, because in his paintings, the main focus is on the Scandinavian and the rugged landscapes, but the drawings have an equal, sort of equal division between rugged landscapes and Dutch drawings. So in the last part of the ex exhibition, devoted to the Dutch landscapes, you will find many drawings, and many of them are of Dutch landscapes. Mm -hmm. So that I hope that feels like a surprise for many people who visit who have been confronted with all these rugged landscapes in the first part of the exhibition. And there's one wall that I'm particularly fond of that we're standing in front of now that's at the, at the far end where I have a selection of drawings that show his, his mastery, that show how good he is as a draftsman. You see drawings in color, with watercolors, and you see drawings that are only done in gray or in ink, and you see drawings that are that show night scenes, and you see drawings that are bright, the brightest of day. Um, some of them are full of detail, some of them are a bit more sketchy, more the Molijn-like, sort of abstract. And I think this wall shows what he's capable of as a draftsman. And what it also shows, and I really like that, is his interest in human activity. Mm -hmm. You see, for instance, the night, the night scene that I love very much. It's a tower in the evening. It's called Tower in the Evening. It's from the Fondation Custodia in Paris. You see someone carrying a bag. People did that for a living, right? The bag carriers. And someone behind him is holding a lantern and lighting up the scene. 
So you are drawn as, a, as, a, as an onlooker, you're drawn to the light of the one with the lantern. And then you, then you keep thinking, what's, what's going on there? What are they doing? And then you see the bag carrier that uh, probably belongs with the one with the lantern. They have to carry something somewhere. And then be, below that one is a, a painting of a, a burial scene near a parish church. There's a church on the side and people come in carrying a, a coffin and you see how the hole in the ground where the coffin will be lowered in, you see it on the right, people standing there with their uh, spades. Um, so it's, it's a sort of scene from everyday life, uh, done with much loving detail, I would say. But I like these, where you see humans interacting, doing what they probably did on a daily basis in the 17th century, and sort of maybe it's... Um, um, it, it might have been imagined by Allard, but still he must have based it on what he saw. We're standing now in front of Allard's probably most well-known painting, which is on loan from the Rijksmuseum, which displays Hendrik Tripp's Cannon Foundry at Ulita Brook, which is a monumental, even bigger than the one we were just standing in, painting that's horizontal format and displays, I believe it's the property of the Trips in Sweden. Yes, it's, uh, it uh, depicts the... Um, the cannon foundry, the, the place where the cannon were made by the family trip and they were, uh, that made them rich. They got very rich from the selling of these cannon and uh, other resources from Sweden, copper, iron, they also, uh, um, also sold that. Uh, and they got very rich and then they had a monumental house built in Amsterdam in the center, uh, the Trippenhaus, it's called. Yeah. I believe. It was built in uh, the 1660s, 1660 to 1662. And they asked several artists to make decorations for that house, paintings or uh, ceiling decorations, ceiling paintings. Um, and they also asked Allard van Everingen. And that shows, that, that really shows that he is at the moment, in the 60s, still the Scandinavian specialist. So if you want anything Scandinavian, you go and ask Allard. Because he his trip was, you know, far in his past, 1644. We're, we're many years ahead. But uh, he didn't go to this specific site. He never visited it. He There's no proof that he went to Scandinavia again in the 1660s, um, commissioned by the trips. And he obviously never saw this area because he there's topographical mistakes, or maybe it's not mistakes, <laughs> maybe it's choices, yeah. I'd like to add. Um, but it's just, Allard is your go-to when you want anything Scandinavian. So you ask him, and they probably provided him with maps. And of course, they, they told him how things went about in their factory, and he depicted it. So it's not, I would say, his best landscape as a, as a, as a landscape, as an artwork, but it's a very interesting painting because you can really follow the whole process of producing canon. I don't think most people walking past this painting, either here at the Rijksmuseum, would be able to gather all this knowledge or context um, just by looking, even though it <laughs> no. has so much going on inside no. of it. No, and even because it's nice to look at, even you know, without knowing what's going on, you can. I think you can, if you if you get where you have to start, you can follow it. It sort of goes in a circle around the yeah. around the painting. So we're standing in a small annex of the exhibition, which is specialized on Reinhard de Vos, um, which is a fable about a fox who's anthropomorphic 
and it's largely a European tale from the early Middle Ages that is meant to represent the relations between the burghers, the clergy, the nobility, etc. Um, could you speak about the exhibition space itself, which is super special because there's an actual um, fox and a hen who are lit in shadow to sort of illuminate the story itself, surrounded by his drawings. Yeah, the special thing about the Reinhard the Fox print series, because it's a, a series of 57 prints that Allard made at the end of his life, around 1670. Um, and the special thing is not just that he made the series, which is, you know, weird in, in a way for someone specializing in landscape um, to suddenly uh, start making a print series on a fox, um, but he did. And then the special thing is also that his working material was preserved. So all the drawings, the small drawings that he made to try out compositions, to really make designs for the prints, to uh, move around motifs to see what worked well, all this material has been preserved, or well, a large, a large portion of it. So 80 drawings are preserved in the British Museum in London, and we are showing 19. We couldn't uh, uh, borrow them all, but we're showing 19, and these really give you an impression of how this artist worked, how he tried to find the best composition to tell the story. And you can also see how he's still the landscape specialist because um, uh, contrary to other artists who depicted this story of Reinhard the Fox, he gives a lot of attention to the landscape context of where the animals are. And also very new is the fact that he depicted the animals as animals. So they're not they are anthropomorphic in the story, yeah, for sure. You're right about that. They do human things and they have human uh, props and stuff that they're and they're talking to each other and they have all these conversation. But Allard depicts them as animals. They do animal things, uh, and they don't have things in their claws. Uh, and if they do for the story, he makes sure he depicts the story moment right after they put that down so that he doesn't have to depict them holding it. There's actually just, I think, two prints where you see an animal standing up in clothes. All the others do not have, uh, all the other pictures do not have uh, animals with clothes on. So to highlight the fact that you see the artist at work here, mm -hmm. this is what we're trying to, this is again the message we're trying to convey. We're not really talking about the story. Because it's, it's not a nice story, you know? The fox, he, he rapes other animals, he, he, uh, he betrays them, he, he is violent, he's, he's not a nice guy at all. Not at all, so we're not, and it's, it's, you, it's, it's in a way, it's, it's the same over and over again in the story. He, he, um, he betrays someone and he gets away with it. That's usually what happens over and over again. So we weren't looking at, we, we, we weren't interested in telling that story over and over again. With every etching, we do, um, do explain what's going on, but in a very concise way. Because what's really going on here is that you see the artist at work. You see how he made his compositions and his drawings. And one of the key aspects is that he depicted the animals as animals. So that's when we thought of bringing an actual fox, well, a dead fox, but an actual fox and an actual hen in. And the designer of the exhibition, who also did the large gallery, and who is, as we have seen, very interested in using light and color uh, in telling the story, she said, I, I would very much like to have an actual fox and uh, a hen or some other animal, and use light to cast shadows of them on the wall and have them sort of interact. Mm -hmm. So that the families who come in here with kids, because it's, it's really um, focused on families with kids, 
they can sit at the end of the gallery when they have looked at the drawings and the etchings and they have understood how this artist worked and that he really looked at the animals, they can sit there and look at the actual animals and also draw if they feel like it. Be, be an artist yourself. Yeah. See the artist at work and be an artist at work. So we're back upstairs after visiting the exhibition downstairs, which is really well composed and again divided into these thematic um, spaces that cover the Scandinavian landscape, the maritime landscape, the Dutch landscape itself, again confronted or fronted by these um, pictures by the contemporary photographer Pascal. Um, one of the things I want to talk about now that we uh, have been inside the exhibition itself is the catalog, which of course is going to serve as the only documentary of the exhibition once it actually goes away. It's very beautifully produced and again you combine different approaches from these different categories that you've created. Could you speak about the importance of a catalogue after an exhibition has ended? As curators there's always a deadline. There's the moment, there's that moment when the exhibition is opened and that's the end of your research for now uh, and that's the, usually the moment you present your catalogue. So that's the addition you make to that subject and then it's up to other people to take it one step further maybe next year maybe in 10 years maybe in 100 years that's okay um, but there's always questions always remain because you don't stop when there's no more questions you stop when you know you need to produce the book and you need to open the exhibition so i do try to in the exhibition give a sort of well-rounded story mm -hmm. that you really tell some sort of story about the artist that has a beginning and an end and a middle part and that, that sort of really convey a message. I've been talking about that a lot. I try to convey some, some specific message, but that's also a choice and I like people to see that. So usually I'm somewhere in the audio guide talking about that. Um, so making an exhibition is a choice and that, that, that leads to the fact that you're presenting the artist in some specific way that might not do all of the aspects of his oeuvre justice. But it's up to people coming after me uh, to, uh, to add to that with new, um, new research. So the exhibition is just, you know, the rounding off of the story and the showing of what our choices were and what our story is. And the real questions that still remain are in the catalog. So mm. that's why I think the catalog is really important. It, it, it documents what we found, but it also raises the questions that still remains uh, uh, explicitly. We try to really um, be open about what we don't know yet or what, what puzzled us or what struck us. So it's up to other people to, um, uh, to build on that. And well, it's not like I don't touch on that in the, ca in the, in the gallery, because I'm thinking of it now that I'm speaking of it, that I, I do know that for s in some labels uh, with some objects, I do say that we're not sure mm -hmm. what the, the context of some specific uh, work is or what it was made for. But not too often, because people do go to museums to get some answers. You don't have to pretend like you have all the answers, but they do want to learn something or... or uh, get educated by you. So you, you, it doesn't work if you say, well, I know nothing. Your, your, your word's as good as mine. Because it's not true. I did research this artist with a group of people for five years. So I do think I have some stories to tell and some of them are in the galleries. But I do think there's also more stories to be found. And um, I think the catalog serves that, um, uh, that purpose. But the catalog should also be a thing of beauty that attracts people who want to know more about this uh, artist. And I always like to think of the catalogs that are produced under my supervision 
that they do make a visual argument as well as, of course, a textual one. There's a lot of text in there and I hope it's nice to read. I try to make sure it's nice to read for people who don't know much about art history and about the words we use. Try to make sure that everyone could read it. But also, if you just flip through it, I also try to make sure that you gain something from just leafing through it and only looking at the pictures. For instance, I hope that it it really stri strikes you when you leave through it that it's so diverse. And I also hope that you see that these waterfalls come up every once in a while. <laughs> That's sort of the, <laughs> the storyline running through his whole life. But that is more than that. And this diversity of the oeuvre, that's sort of dear to my heart uh, part of uh, Allard's uh, story. Um, we did tell that to the designer of the catalog. Again, the designer asked us, what do you try to convey? And uh, we talked about that. The diversity was an important part because it can get really boring. A book about artworks with only waterfalls is even more boring than a gallery full of waterfalls. So um, I think she did an amazing job, Barbara Hermann, the designer of Studio Berislok, who designed the catalog. And we were constantly working together and uh, trying things out. Also, one of the things that I don't do, that many, uh, many other people do, I think, is have every artwork in the catalog just once. There are some artworks that are in there, I think, five times, because I, I don't want people to have to work constantly, constantly flipping through uh, when I talk about when I say there's an interesting, uh, it's interesting to compare this drawing with this painting, I don't want people to have to flip from the drawing section to the painting section mm -hmm. to see it. I want them to see it right away. So they're not all a large size, these images, but I try to have the image, try to make it as easy for the reader to understand our arguments. You can really see that as well, because first of all, it's gorgeously produced. Uh, it's beautifully designed. It's easy to hold in the hand, which makes it, um, unlike some catalogs, accessible actually to use in the exhibition, if you actually would yeah, choose to do so. Yeah, you can take so. it with you. Yeah, yeah. And you can always tell a good book, um, uh, not by its cover, but in this <laughs> also, case, it's maybe. inside cover, because a lot of the books, especially from the early 2000s, especially that were produced by Dutch art museums, they're, you can tell they were not as looked at in a holistic manner as, again, maybe as a reflection of your own background, as I've highlighted, uh, it feels like many times already. Mm -hmm. But I can <laughs> see that you even gave um, attention to the front flap and the way it folds out, and you actually chose to print an image on there, which is not always the case with, um, let's say, catalogs, because very often, again, a curator will work with their team, hand off the pictures and the word files, and, you know, a few months later, you have the printed book wherever yeah. it's printed. And in this I think case, many, it's many really not that. curators nowadays like to work with designers. I think that's that's becoming more of more the general rule. Really add how, something. How it, I, I, I do hope that's the general rule. And I, I know some of my colleagues who do. But especially when you're making a book and it's it's so much a child, right, that you're putting into the world. So I love to work with a designer and, and keep thinking what will work best. What are we trying to say about this person and how... Not everyone is going to read the book. I'm, I know that. <laughs> not everyone who buys it will actually read it. Well, you did, I know. But not many people do. So you want the book to also bring something to people if they don't read it. So you want to, to have that message also in, uh, in a visual way. And I love working with the designers. And the idea of, of printing something on the inside of the cover was actually from the designer. And I loved it right away. And then we spent some time deciding what it should be. It was It's photos from Pascal from Norway. And it's, again, uh, a way to get people in the mood of what they're going to see. 
and to also make it a contemporary book, a modern book. Well, it really works, and it really invites the reader in initially from page one, quite literally. I love to hear that, thanks. So thanks for giving it so much attention. Um, to step back and then to look forward, um, what do you have planned here at the museum for the coming few years? Uh, long-term goals in terms of maybe what's happening next year, but what do you hope to achieve in five years, since exhibitions do, of course, take years to plan? Yeah, we're already working up until we have plans for 2026. That's the, the furthest, furthest away at this point in time. But we're also thinking about uh, after that. Um, I work with a, a colleague, another curator here who, uh, who works on our modern collection, modern art. So we sort of alternate. Uh, I will do one exhibition and she will do the next. And um, and sometimes we have, many times we have guest curators because for every subject that we think of would work in our museum, we always think who would be the best specialist to work on it. And it it shouldn't always be me or my co colleague Marianne. Um, so what's coming up next in my section, say the city collection, old masters type thing, it will be an exhibition on Plantation Alkmaar, a plantation in Suriname, uh, founded by an Alkmaar citizen, uh, and it grew to be one of the largest plantations in Suriname. Mm -hmm. And we uh, asked uh, Mark Ponte, a uh, famous uh, historian from the city archives in Amsterdam, to work on it as a guest curator. So, so he does. And I'm very happy with that. And I'm working with him. So it's uh, he's sort of the leading researcher, but I'm helping where I can and learning on the, on the job. Um, this is also an instance where I would say, I didn't know much about the history of slavery, but I immersed myself in it the last year because it's very much, you know, the topic the of the air. day and it should be. Yes. Um, so you can see around me are many uh, books about slavery. I'm trying to read up as fast as I can and talk to the people who know a lot about this as Mark Ponte. And uh, learning a lot as I go along, and I'm not as specialized as Mark, but I don't have to since I'm not the curator of this exhibition. But it's 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 uh, an enormously interesting subject. So uh, working on that, and it will open the end of this year, and I'm compiling two smaller exhibitions, more cultural history type uh, subjects, also at the end of this year on Cornelius Drebbel, uh, an inventor engraver from uh, Alkmaar. have a guest curator for that too, Saskia van Altena, a print specialist. And I'm working on the life of a, a well-to-do Alkmaar woman from the beginning of the 17th century. Um, and then further in the future, I will be compiling an exhibition on Maarten van Heemskerk, a oh. monographic exhibition. We will do that together with the Frans Hals Museum. Oh. We will each tell part of the story and we have also asked the Tyler Museum to uh, to join us, and they will. So it will be a three-venue exhibition. Um, and guest curator for all venues will be Professor Ilya Feldman, the one I did my dissertation yes. with. Yes, I remember. So we've come full, full circle. Oh, <laughs> and uh, she will be, be 80 years old uh, when we open the exhibition. It will nearly be her birthday. And it will be absolutely wonderful to have this project curated by her uh, opening at that time, uh, also in her life. She is the international specialist on this artist. And she continues to amaze me with the uh, research she, she is still undertaking. She is still finding new attributions, new dates, new finds, new iconographical finds um, relating to Heemskerk and publishing on them. And also writing a public a book for the general public on Heemskerk to go with the exhibition. And it's an absolute joy to do it together with her. 
Beautiful. Well, I think um, many of the, um, the topics that have been around slavery in 17th century Dutch art, um, people have been wondering where this goes. So I think it's rather special that you are not only taking the theme, but expanding it and zooming in on, for instance, one specific plantation, uh, which is not only an offshoot of the colonialism aspect of the Dutch Golden Age overseas, but also a very specific topic and niche subject in itself, which will thereafter contribute um, new tracks to new pathways of research. We so hope so, yeah. I think you've really done a great job in branching out and using your contextual holistic approach to art to find new pathways uh, for the future. <laughs> uh, I want to thank you so much for being my guest on Dutch Art and Design today and for sharing your journey from, let's say, your first trip to London to your first pleasurable experience with the painting to finding your way through your studies to eventually being the curator of Old Masters here at the Stadelijk Museum in Alkmaar. So thank you very much. It was my pleasure.